Hello and welcome to the March 2019 episode of the MDS podcast, the podcast channel of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. I am Michele Matarazzo from the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada, and today we're going to discuss about different advanced therapies for Parkinson's disease. For doing so, we have the pleasure to have with us Professor K. Ray Chowdhury, who is the director of the Parkinson Center of Excellence of the King's College in London, UK. He is also the chair of the Remoter Parkinson Study Group of the Movement Disorder Society and the co-chair of the MDS Membership and Public Relations Committee. Hello, Professor Chattery, and thank you for joining us today. Hello, Michele, and very nice to be here. You are the senior author of an article published in the March 2019 issue of the Movement Disorder Journal, titled Euroinf2, Subthalamic Stimulation, Apomorphine and Levodopa Infusion in Parkinson's Disease. This is a very interesting study that, as the title says, assesses the use of subthalamic nucleus deep brain stimulation, intrajejunal levodopa infusion, and subcutaneous apomorphine infusion in Parkinson's. The study has been named after a previous project called Euroinf, which evaluated the differences between apomorphine and intrajejunal levodopa infusion, but this study goes a step further, adding the subthalamic nucleus stimulation to the comparison. Before we discuss about the study, we all know that there are different therapeutic options for treating Parkinson's disease, and that most of our patients are on oral or transdermal medications or a combination of both. Can you tell our audience currently what is the indication or what are the indications to switch or complement these standard treatments with the somehow more invasive approaches? Uh, yes, thank you very much. Uh, before I start, I would really like to acknowledge uh, Haida Dafsari who was the first author in the paper who coordinated the whole project and made the data available. So coming specifically to your question, I think the broad indication is that when a person with Parkinson starts developing unpredictable responses to oral or transdermal therapies, in other words, they have frequent motor fluctuations or they might be getting troublesome dyskinesias, Uh, which are often associated with severe non-motor issues as well, both non-motor fluctuations and some dopaminergic non-motor symptoms. That's really the indication of the time when the advanced therapies kick in. And you really have here the three main options, which is deep brain stimulation of the SDN or GPI, or you have apomorphine infusion, or you have intrajejunal levodopa infusion. Further selection of these therapies would depend upon individual choices, availability in local centers, and of course, uh, the patient profile, particularly age, as well as other comorbid motor and non-motor features. So for instance, in the older patient group, perhaps beyond the age of 70, people are less likely to have deep brain stimulation in this group, mainly apomorphine and levodopa infusion would be the most suitable one. So the main indication are still the fluctuation and especially the motor fluctuations. But as you were saying before, there are many other features of the disease that we will have to consider both to support this indication or that will represent a warning sign to be more cautious. And I guess that this was one of the reasons that led you to do this study that we are presenting today. Eurinf2 is an open-label multicenter international observational study that includes a cohort of 173 subjects followed for six months after undergoing subthalamic nucleus DBS, intrajejunal levodopa infusion or apomorphine infusion. Now, we'll get to the results shortly, but let's just focus on the methodology for a few minutes. 
I've noticed that you have decided to exclude people with DBS of the globus pallidus pars interna. Why did you choose to do so? Um, it's simply because the centers that were included in the EuroInf2 study, which is linked to the EuroInf study, so in other words, these were centers also doing levodopa infusion and apomorphine infusion therapies, largely focused on STN DBS or stimulation. So as a result, because it's an observational study, it so happened that most of the patients that we were selecting for this study did have subthalamic nuclear stimulation. Perfect. Also about the methods. What I liked a lot of your study is that it is a real-world study with a very naturalistic approach. So even though it cannot lead directly to a level of evidence of a double-blind trial, it is much more directly applicable to everyday practice. And also, given that the three population were slightly different, to adjust for this selection bias, you have used a very smart solution, which is the propensity score. Can you explain a bit why you chose to do an observational study rather than a trial, and how does the propensity score help you? Yes, I mean, it's a very, very important question. So if, take the first question. The importance of real-life studies cannot be understated. And unfortunately, because we're so taken up with evidence base from a very clean, less noisy, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies, that we sometimes forget that the sample that we, we are looking at may not have that much external validity. As a result, you could see the drugs that do well in clinical trials, sometimes when they're used in real life, they don't work as well because you haven't really tested the drug in the population you're using it in. Either they're too old or they might have other comorbidities, which has never been looked at in the clinical trial. So the attraction of doing an open-label study, to me, is really that, that its external validity, as you said, is really lies with real life and it deals with patients that we see in clinics ourselves, largely. The problems, of course, with open-label studies are, of course, as you said again, is that the evidence base may not, will not be regarded as level one. However, in this sort of situation where you're doing three invasive options, to do a proper randomized study, you're really looking at a triple-blind, triple-dummy study, which A, logistically is virtually impossible, B, the data will be, not become very interpretable, and thirdly, financially, probably will never be done. So really, this remains really the only logistic way of comparing these three therapies, which so far has not been done in the way that we have done in this particular study. The other two major advantages, or I would say differences of this study from other studies would be A, that we focus also in at length on quality of life and non-motor symptoms as well. Very often, we have a tunnel vision approach and we usually have just motor measures as the outcome measures because they are validated for looking at outcomes because the licensing bodies likes them and also because they are usually showing what you've made an a priori assumption of. But the role of these therapies for non-motor symptoms is also emerging and it may be that in future choice of our treatment using these strategies may also be dictated by some non-motor symptoms. So that's something which, again, in observational studies, is relatively important to add. However, 
the problem of the choice of therapy and the blinding and the randomization and the bias all remains in observational study, particularly one that as complex as this is. And that is why we took the option of using the choice statistical uh, strategy. The evidence suggests that this can uh, reduce the bias to some extent. It can also level out the baseline scores to a certain level of equality so that the changes and the, the, the effect size of the individual treatment strategies on your sample are still relevant in spite of the study being open label. This is a very nice approach. Thank you for the explanation. Now, do you want to share with our listeners what are the main findings of your study? Well, I, I think the key effect is we found that all three strategies have a very robust and good effect on the motor functions here is measured by UPDRS3 and UPDRS4. And this is to be expected. Certainly with deep brain stimulation, we have now have a huge, a large range of uh, publications which have shown that. It's not surprising. And we have double-blind data, at least one large study from levodopa infusion therapy, and most recently the Toledo data from apomorphine, all showing that the motor improvement occurs with these therapies, and they're all reasonably effective against dyskinesias, although the anti-dyskinesia effect is more pronounced with deep brain stimulation or SDN, DBS, as is again to be expected. Thereafter comes levodopa infusion therapy, which also has a reasonable antidiskinetic effect. And in terms of dyskinesia reduction, apomorphine is probably the weakest of the three, even though it still has a reasonable antidiskinetic effect. So this is something we may need to consider and again has been supported by previous open label and some comparative studies. More importantly, however, we also found that all three therapies are effective of reducing your levodopa equivalent dosing of the patient's oral drugs or uh, transdermal therapies. And this, particularly the, the levodopa equivalent dose in this particular work, appeared to be particularly reduced or significantly reduced after STN-DBS. So that had the, that the most major uh, LED uh, uh, reduction. In terms of the other rather innovative outcomes where the uh, explorative outcomes on the NMSS, the non-motor symptom scale, uh, this has several uh, domains and there seems to be some distinct profiles. So we found, for instance, the STN-DBS has a specifically beneficial effect, and I think this has been reported for the first time, uh, uh, urinary and sexual function, although we would probably say the urinary function is more relevant here. It also has a reasonably positive effect on sleep and fatigue and the miscellaneous domain of the non-motor symptom scale, which deals a lot with non-motor fluctuations, in particular unexplained pain and hyperhidrosis. When we look at levodopa infusion, these three domains are again improved, but in addition, we find an improvement in some of the gastrointestinal symptoms, particularly constipation, some problems with abdominal bloating, and also feeling of fullness after meals, for instance. Apomorphine, on the other hand, seems to have a very strong effect on mood and cognition, particularly mood, and to some extent on attention as well. And contrary to common perception, certainly in this subset, within the six-month follow-up, we did not see any significant deterioration 
or emergence of problems with perception or hallucination as one would think that with use of dopamine agonists uh, such as apomorphine, they might be worsening of psychosis. The important other thing is that the quality of life measures were improved in all of them, and this supports the measures from EuroInf1 uh, study. So you have, again, three potent strategies of advanced therapies, all providing a beneficial effect on the quality of life. But again, the quality of life measures were favorable, again, for both STNDBS and levodopa infusion therapy. So I think in a holistic way, this work should pave the way for further research as to see what type of further motor and non-motor profile might be suitable for patients who undergo either apomorphine, DBS, or levodopa infusion therapy. So as you were saying, I guess this, this is a confirmation that these approaches work in clinical practice in a real-world scenario. And also knowing all these new things will probably help to choose what is the best strategy for a given subject. So it seems that we will have to be very good at phenotyping and selecting the patients very accurately, and probably also to involve the patient in the choice of the most appropriate approach that will have to be individualized on a case-by-case basis. What impact do you think your finding may have in clinical practice? Or said in other words, do you think that we should do something differently in our daily practice considering the results of your study? Yeah, I think what you've said is very, very important again. I mean, it's the, this work will underpin the delivery of personalized medicine in a real way for our patients with advanced Parkinson's where advanced therapies are being considered. So if you have access to all three therapies in your center, for instance, these several factors that have come out in this particular observational study could influence the way you might choose a patient for your advanced therapies. So, for instance, if you have a patient with motor fluctuations where mood might be a significant problem, you might be tempted to go with trying apomorphine infusion as your first-line therapy. On the other hand, if you have a patient who has considerable degree of sleepiness, because we also looked at side effect profiles and also emergence of problems such as uh, somnolence, impulse control disorders, and so on. So if you have a profile of patient where they, they might be more somnolent, they might have more, perhaps some history of significant psychosis or ICD in the past, you might be more tempted in that situation to go with levodopa infusion therapy, particularly as you see that some of these patients' gastrointestinal profile improves uh, particularly. On the other hand, if you have a motor-dominant phenotype where dyskinesias are the main problem, and if the patient profile is otherwise suitable in terms of age and individual preference, deep brain stimulation might be an option. And intriguingly, we have this urinary dysfunction coming up as a signal, which appears to be affected largely by DBS, but not so much the other two therapies. And whether or not this is a specific effect uh, will need to be shown in further studies. So I think this study is already giving us some signals. And what it does do is help us develop more personalized medicine strategies when we're selecting these advanced therapies. But clearly, we now need to do more longer studies with these therapies, perhaps in a larger cohort of patients, but really addressing some of these non-motor symptoms, which seems to have be able to change after these therapies are instituted, 
So by default, they would otherwise mean that they're either dopaminergic or at least partially dopaminergic in origin, but also can be amenable to deep brain stimulation. The STN-DBS uh, literature has been remarkably devoid of providing any non-motor data. If you look at all their data over the years, it's largely focused on motor measures and quality of life measures. And I suspect that this would be one of the key studies which have also addressed uh, specific non-motor effects of STN-DBS, which we have published separately as well in, in a more longitudinal open-label fashion. So, as you were explaining earlier, we are considering more and more also non-motor symptoms for choosing patients for these advanced treatments. Now, and I guess you have answered already partly to this question, but what do you think are the next steps for an even better patient selection? And more specifically, do you think there is any place for more objective measurements for technology or for artificial intelligence in this, uh, in this selection? Yes, I think I think this should set the scene really for um, for doing better screening and making and enriching the population that goes into uh, these therapies. At the moment, we have rather generic guidelines. Anybody with motor fluctuation or troublesome dyskinesias, but I think there might be more people who are suitable for these therapies. You might even consider earlier institution of these therapies based on some of the signs, motor and non-motor we've found. At the end, what you want is a patient to have a sustained improvement in quality of life, which at least the initial signals suggest, and certainly with the DBS literature and with levodopa infusion literature, we know that uh, such effects are sustained also in the long term between two to five years. But I think the key message is that better characterizing of your baseline measures with using motor measures uh, like scales as we do, but also non-motor measures is really, really important. You mentioned the use of uh, artificial intelligence, and I think that will have a key role uh, because artificial intelligence, say, for instance, using either wearable sensors or app-based data platforms, can give us more accurate monitoring of the effect of these strategies, particularly when the patient is at home, the so-called remote monitoring. And if we can take the care of the patients to their homes, as is possible with remote monitoring, <clears throat> I think that would be a really important addition to where we how initiate and how we manage our patients. Initially, I see the role of artificial intelligence more in monitoring the progress uh, after they are given a specific type of advanced therapy, which could be either DBS or apomorphine infusion or levodopa infusion. Or, but later on, I would think certain parameters could also guide us through the artificial intelligence as to which patients might be suitable for such advanced therapies. But I think for that, we need more research. All right. You have anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Um, no, it's just that, you know, I think it's important to, I think the message is really that the effect, the outcome measures of these therapies are much wider than we originally thought. It's just not about um, improving motor fluctuations and dyskinesias. Often the patient's quality of life improves because you're also improving other factors. We've shown factors such as mood, factors such as pain, and urinary function, gastrointestinal dysfunction can all improve. One thing that I didn't touch upon much is that we also found quite a robust effect, certainly of deep brain stimulation, as well as levodopa infusion therapy on sleep 
And again, these are the areas of research that needs to be, I think, addressed more in detail in future studies. Well, thank you again, Professor Shadori, for taking the time of being with us today, and thank you all for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel to receive reminders when new episodes are out, and we'd love to have your feedback on the social media of the Movement Disorder Society on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thank you.